morning, everyone. Um, strange not to be able to just jump up on the stage. Sorry? Uh, no, it's fine. It's not bugging me. Is it bugging anyone else? Is it okay? Right, good morning. Welcome and welcome to all of those that are joining us online. Um, this morning is part two of our Worlds Collide series, which we started last week. And just to give you a brief summary, because I, 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 there's so much. Normally when I do a sermon, I'm like... Okay, Lord, speak to me. Let me fill this up. Now I'm like, what do I leave out? There is so much interesting stuff this morning. And I really hope it will speak to you the way it was speaking to me um, as I was, I was delving not just into God's word, but also into the history behind some of the word we're going to unpack today. But just to catch everyone up for those who, who weren't here, um, we are doing a series called Worlds Collide, which looks at those times when heaven and earth kind of meet. Sorry, now I am getting a hum. Is it from this thing? from that. There we go. Sorry. So these moments where heaven and earth meet and how we have God, and I'm still getting a hum. Can anyone else hear it? If it's not bugging anyone else, I'm okay. Is it all right? Okay. All right. So I'll say that like what, fourth time. Heaven and earth meet in these worlds colliding moments. And we are specifically looking at the story of Moses because if you've ever read that story in Exodus, um, it's amazing how how many times Moses encountered God and what we can learn from those encounters and just how relevant they are to our own lives today. And so last week we looked at the early life of Moses and we looked at how Moses was born into the Israelite nation who were living in slavery in Egypt. And then um, he was put at three months old, he was put into a basket because there was an edict in, in the land at the time that all the baby boys had to be um, killed by being thrown into the river. So his mom went to save him by putting him in a basket Long story short, he ends up adopted in Pharaoh's household, so he's raised as a prince of Egypt. Then when he's about 40 years old, he ends up fleeing away from Egypt because he kills an Egyptian slave driver. He goes to the land of Midian where he considers himself a foreigner. And there we ended off last week with a conversation that was happening between Moses and God. And God basically, um, you know the story of the burning bush. It's one of the favorite Sunday school stories. And God speaks to Moses and says to him, I want you to go and set my people free. And then Moses asks God a whole lot of questions. And that's where we left off last week. Um, And this week, we're actually going to look at what happens when Moses obeys and he goes to Pharaoh and he, um, he speaks to Pharaoh on behalf of all the Israelites as instructed by God. And just so that you know, you might be familiar with the story. His brother Aaron was used as his spokesman. Um, so you may, if you read the scripture, sometimes speak, hear Aaron, and then you'll hear Moses. Two different guys, but both with the same mission under the same order from God. Moses was afraid to speak, and we unpacked that last week, why? Um, and God eventually says to him, fine, you can use your brother Aaron as the spokesman. And God actually says to Moses, I will, you will be as God, and Moses will be the mes- um, Aaron will be the messenger. So in other words, Moses fulfills the role of God, Aaron then brings the message. So this is what we find now. Moses has had this conversation with God. This is all happening in Exodus chapter 4. He has this conversation. He eventually agrees he's going to go back in. He goes to, um, he goes to his father-in-law in Midian. He says to him, I'm going to go back to, to see who of my people are still alive. And he doesn't tell his father-in-law the full mission. So I'm going to go back to Egypt, see if anyone I know is still alive there. And he meets his brother Aaron at the mountain of God. Interesting enough, it's the exact same spot the burning bush happened. 
Um, so he'd had the burning bush, gone back to his father-in-law, come back. And at the burning bush site, the Mount Horeb, he met up with Aaron. And they then call all the Israelite elders, and they tell the Israelite elders their mission. And that this message gets relayed to all the Hebrew slaves, and they are ecstatic. They are thrilled because they realize that God has heard their pleas and has, is reaching down to rescue them from their suffering. So that's end of chapter 4. Now, I just want to give you, if you'll bear with me, a little bit of a history of Egypt so that we're, as we're unpacking what's going to happen today, you'll begin to draw some parallels because we're going to be looking at how God set the people free, and we're going to be looking specifically at the 10 plagues that he sent to Egypt and he, he sent upon the Egyptian nation. But before we get there, I just want to put Egypt in perspective at the time. So I've got a map up there. I don't know. I think for the people at the back might battle a bit today with things being cut off, but you can kind of see Egypt is over on your far left there. And then you can see, don't worry too much about the red line. That's just showing the route that Moses possibly took when he fled from Egypt. But you can get the idea of where this is all happening. So Moses, um, raised in Egypt, goes across to Midian. There's a little bit of, um, debate as to the exact location of Mount Sinai, but that piece of land coming down in the V-shape with the Red Sea and the Red Sea on either side is called the Sinai Peninsula. And so this is where a lot of the God encounters happen. And later on in the story, we come back to that location. And the land up there, can you kind of see it where the red line starts? It's called Goshen. Can you see that on the map there? Sort of. That's the area that the Hebrew slaves lived in Egypt. That was considered Lower Egypt. Where you see all the river tributaries coming out there, that's called the Nile Delta of the time. The Nile Delta was considered the most sacred land because the Egyptians weren't some backwards sort of nation of, of uh, people with no knowledge and no insights into things. If anything, they were the advanced nation of the time. The Egyptians, if you, anyone here ever played the game bowls? Anyone? You can thank the Egyptians for that. They developed bowls. Anyone here brushed their teeth this morning? They, they invented toothbrushing, they invented hairbrushing, they invented um, wigs and shaving. Um, they, they were forerunners in engineering. I mean, just their pyramids will speak to that. There was huge insights into maths and astronomy. The Egyptians were an advanced nation. They were a ruling nation at the time. Um, and they were also a very religious people. So within Egypt, you had your different classes. You had the ruler uh, who was known as Pharaoh. We call him Pharaoh. We don't quite know what they called him. He was the king, basically. And you had all the nobility and the royalty. And then you had, just like in modern-day society, you had different economic classes within Egypt. But regardless of which class you were part of in the Egyptian culture, they were very much a religious nation, and I need you to understand that, because Egyptians held a very um, polytheistic view of the creation of the universe. They believed in multiple gods, and if you go and do research, which I hope you will, because we don't have time this morning to go and unpack every little detail, but it was catchy. I couldn't put... The, the notes and the books down. It, it's so, so interesting to read. And they, they had anywhere between 1,400 and 2,000 gods or deities, gods and goddesses that they believed in. So they had what was called a really big pantheon, a really big sort of um, 
group of gods that they worshipped. And every god had their own little role that they played. And there were some that you may be familiar with. I've got the names of some that you may have learned about in school. You've got Ra, who was the sun god. You've got Asis, who was the goddess of magic. Osiris was the god of the underworld. Set was the god of deserts and storms. Hathor, Apis, they were the, the god of agriculture. And they were depicted as cattle and bulls. And as we go, I'm going to mention some of these names Because it's important that we understand exactly what was happening, not just from our perspective, but from the perspective of the Egyptians and the Israelites who had been raised in Egypt. So the Egyptians believed very, very strongly in the afterlife. In fact, I mean, you just have to look at, um, there's a series on, on Disney Plus at the moment called Lost Treasures of Egypt. And the Egyptians spent a lot of their time in this world preparing for the next world. When, a, when um, a, a pharaoh or a ruler died, they'd, they'd have pyramids. There's a whole area called the Valley of the Kings. There are tombs. There are treasures. There are sarcophaguses. They, they spent a great deal of time in this world preparing for the afterlife. They had a view that there was an afterlife. They didn't worship our God. They worshipped a variety of gods. And there was a whole different set of rules and things you had to do in order to make it into the afterlife. In fact, they believed once you got to the afterlife, there was sort of like a whole quiz show called, I found this interesting, the field of reeds was their version of heaven. Now, maybe I'm reaching here, but where was Moses found? In the reeds. And I kind of think God often toys a lot with the parallels between something they could relate to and something he was trying to do. So they had this big view of, um, of religion, of God. They were a very religious, very, is everything okay there? They were a very religious and they were a very clean nation. They spent a lot of time making sure their priests, for example, would bathe up to four times a day. They'd remove all their body hair. They would be a very, they were very much about keeping up the appearance and worshiping in the right way. That's what the, the, the Egyptians believed. Um, so we're going to start from there. I hope that background wasn't too much. <laughs> it, it's a bit bitty, but it comes together, I promise. Um, and something I found very interesting about the religious faith, and not just religious faith, religious culture in Egypt, was they held a great deal of power, or they believed that, that a person's name held a great deal of power. So most Egyptians never told anyone their real name. Even Moses, if you go and read some texts, was a nickname that was given. And so what would happen is a pharaoh, when he would ascend to the throne, would give himself a new name because they believed very much that if anyone knew your real name, they had power over you. And if you go back into their religious texts, that's how Osiris, who was initially a pharaoh, that's how he was killed because he revealed his name to someone and they performed some magic and this is what they believed. I find it very, very interesting that when God met with Moses... What's the one thing he did at the burning bush that we unpacked last week? He revealed his name, his true name to Moses. And he he even says this in Genesis 17 verse 1. He says to Abraham, God's only ever called himself a, a handful of names. Most of them are names we've ascribed to him. But God, the name he gives himself 
In Genesis 17 verse 1, he says to Abraham, I am God Almighty, which is El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Walk before me who is faith, uh, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. In Exodus 3, God now comes to Moses and he says to him, I am who I am. This is what you are to, are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also says to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, your God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Later on in Exodus, God says to Moses in, in Exodus 6 verse 3, he says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, which translates to I am, which is Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. Can you see what a, for us, we go, okay, God told him his name. For Moses, you have a God who is revealing something that Egyptians don't believe should be revealed because it means I'm kind of showing my power to you and you can use that power. And God starts off his journey with Moses by revealing something he says he hasn't revealed to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He says, they knew me as God Almighty, but the Israelites now will know me as the Lord. I am who I am. And that name Yahweh that is spoken in that context emphasizes God as the supreme and eternal form of existence from beginning to end. In other words, what he's saying is, I am God, like bigger than anything you've ever seen, more powerful than anything you've ever seen, more present than anything you've ever seen. He's going, I'm not just God Almighty. That's what Abraham knew me as. I am the Lord Almighty. And for us sitting here, we don't, we lack the correct language to kind of put this into English terms, but it's a powerful, powerful statement. And God, and it's important that we understand that before we get into the bits and pieces this morning, because it's important that we understand exactly from where God encounters Moses to where he leads the Israelite people out of slavery, exactly what he is unpacking. And he hints at it in that statement. They will know me as the Lord Almighty. And then he says this in Exodus 3 verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go, meaning Pharaoh will let you go. That's another thing that would have, Moses would have heard and it would have had meaning to him. Because in the Egyptian context, with all their gods, they believed very much in the power of the hand of the gods, meaning that's where the, the god's power was. So when we hear that, we're like, oh, cool, hand of God. For Moses, who was raised as an Egyptian, you've got a god who's giving his true name, which was not something that was done, and saying, I'm going to stretch out my hand. It had a powerful, powerful impact on what Moses would have understood by that at the time. In Exodus 6, 6, he says, he carries on with that idea. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And again, you have that idea. And if you go and read Exodus, you're going to see that again and again and again. It speaks about the outstretched arm. It speaks about the outstretched hand of God. And I had this epiphany while I was doing this, is that, there were, that we all say there were 10 plagues, right? How many fingers are on a hand? Or on two hands, not on one. 
on two hands. How many fingers do people have? They've got 10. And 10 has always been the number of completeness, the number of fullness. In biblical terms, it means the, the entirety. In other words, God's about to really reveal himself as we go. And so this is what happens. God has this conversation with Moses. He reveals, this, this, he reveals his plan. He reveals some of his persona to Moses. Moses goes to Aaron. Aaron and Moses together go to the Israelite leaders. The Israelite leaders go to the people. And we're at the point now where they're like, yes, God's going to rescue us. And so at the start of Exodus chapter 5, Aaron and Moses together go into the presence of Pharaoh. And this is what they say to him. This is Exodus 5. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. Something you've got to understand is, once you were out of Egypt, even though they, the, Moses and them initially asked Pharaoh, can we have three days to go into the wilderness? Once they exit me, Egypt, they're no longer slaves. And Pharaoh is well aware of that. Because once you're out of the Egyptian land, you're no longer part of Egypt. In fact, that's why Egyptians very seldom left Egypt. You won't find them traveling all over the world because they believed if they died anywhere but the Nile Delta, they couldn't go into the afterlife. So Pharaoh doesn't want the people to even just walk out for a few days. He wants them there in his land. And this is Pharaoh's reply to them. He says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. In Egyptian culture, amongst all of their many gods that they served, the Pharaoh himself was seen as a god. In fact, he was probably the most pivotal figure. So when Moses and Aaron went to speak to Pharaoh, they weren't just speaking to an Egyptian king. For all intents and purposes, they were, they were speaking to someone who the Egyptians and he himself considered a god among them. And this god turns around and goes, I don't know your god. Why should I listen? Why should I let the people go? And then Pharaoh does what so often happens in our own lives when you take a stand for something. He makes the Israelites' life more difficult. So the Israelite people start off by going, yes, God's heard our pleas. Thank you, Moses and Aaron. You're going to go speak to Pharaoh. He's going to let us go. This is awesome. And they have this conversation with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, who is your God? Who is this? He's no Lord to me. I will not let them go. And then he turns to his slave drivers and he says, take away the straw that the Israelites use for making their bricks but they must still make the same number of bricks. So now they must, in addition to their daily tasks, also go out and gather their own straw and their own stubble to make bricks. And they got harder. Things got harder. Things got more difficult for the Israelites. And so the Israelites start to complain, like, this was obviously a bad idea. Look at this now. This, is, this isn't working out how you kind of said it was going to work out at end of chapter 5. That's it. We're done. They complain to the um, foremen who are over them. Those foremen complain to Moses. What does Moses do? He goes and complains to God. Don't we do that? We never do that. Hey, never, ever. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, God says to Moses, because Moses has gone like, Lord, what have you done? Now the people's lives are even more difficult. You said we must let them go. Pharaoh won't let them go. And now there's a mess. And God says this, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out 
um, out of, he will drive them out of his country. In other words, Pharaoh is not just going to go, okay, pack up and go. He's going to go, get out, go. God says, because of what I'm about to do, Pharaoh is going to change completely. And he's not just going to be kind. He's going to want you gone. So, this is where we begin. That was the intro. How are we on time? Okay, I'll try to go through this really fast. It's so interesting. When Moses stands before Pharaoh for the first time and he says, let my people go, Pharaoh basically says, who is this God? This God means nothing to me. And does anyone remember what Moses did then? You know your Bible story. There's a rod that Aaron carries. There's a staff. And he puts the staff on the ground, and the, gra- and the staff turns into a snake. Pharaoh's not very impressed. Whatever, you know? So what? Because Pharaoh's own magicians, by their magic arts, are able to convert their staffs into um, snakes as well. And they're on the ground too. And then something very interesting happens. The snake, the rod of Aaron, eats the rods that are the Pharaoh's uh, snakes, the, the magician's snakes. And that would have been another very powerful sign that the Egyptians would have understood. We just go, okay, a snake ate a snake, big deal. But in Egyptian religion and in their folklore, a snake eating a snake was a very popular refrain that they were used to. Because going way back to Nebuchadnezzar, which was one of their early gods, he was the original snake. And he consumed other snakes and therefore became all-powerful and immune to magic. And so I've got a photo there. I don't know if you're going to be able to see it. But you'll know that the, the Egyptian pharaohs in their headdresses always had, I don't know if you can see it there at the back, they always had a snake. Because that snake represented, sorry, am I off the screen? That snake represented the power of the pharaoh. But Aaron's snake ate up Pharaoh's snakes. Already there's a foreshadowing going, God is so much more powerful than any God-man king. He is so much bigger and more powerful that his, just his staff would eat up the, uh, the Egyptian staffs. And so Moses goes away, comes back to Pharaoh, and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, not going to happen. And so Aaron stretches out again the staff over the Nile River, and all the river turns to pure blood. And in fact, the Bible tells us that not just the river water was blood, but any water that they'd previously scooped out of the river. So if you had a jug of Nile water in your kitchen, that turned to blood too. And um, he, he speaks about how the fish in the river died, and there was a huge stink in all of Egypt. Now, the Egyptians believed very much that the, the river was the lifeblood of Osiris. They believed there were many Nile gods and goddesses. And so when God did this and made the Egyptian people suffer in what we call the first plague, he was basically saying, well, where are those gods now? Where are your river gods? Where are your, your, um, your, your bigger Osiris? Where's his lifeblood now? His lifeblood has become a source of suffering for the Egyptian people. So in Exodus 7, verse 14 to, 20, uh, 14 to 24, we read about how the river turns to blood. And the people have to dig next to the Nile Delta in order to find any fresh water to survive. And the river stays like that for seven days. Stays like that for seven days. 
But again, Pharaoh's magicians are able to replicate this task. And so Pharaoh isn't very impressed. They're also able to, by their secret arts, take a bit of water, make it look like blood. He's not very impressed. Moses comes and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I will not. And so God brings the second plague in Exodus 8, verse 1 to 15. The second plague is frogs cover the land. The frogs come out of the river. They go everywhere. They go into the ovens. They go into the bedrooms. They go into the kitchens. They're everywhere. Everywhere in Egypt there are frogs. And you might think, well, that doesn't sound so bad. Like, I'm not really afraid of frogs. You want to imagine, I mean, imagine trying to lie down to sleep and there's frogs all over your bed. And in Egypt, the frog was a sacred animal. They, their, their goddess Hecate was depicted with the head of a frog, and it was, it was against their beliefs to actually kill frogs. So imagine having all these critters in your home and you can't put them to death because um, it's against what you believe. And the frogs were considered sacred to Egypt, and now they're being inundated with these frogs. And magicians, the, the pharaoh's magicians, were able to replicate this. They were. They also could make frogs appear, but they weren't able to make them disappear. And that was the problem with the Egyptians. They were going, I can't, I can't do this, you know. And Pharaoh then realizes this. This is now plague number three. Pharaoh goes, so plague one, he's like, no, I will not let you go. Plague two, I will not let you go. Plague three, he calls Moses and Aaron and he says to them, okay, let's talk. Um, can you please get rid of the frogs? And then we can talk about what we can do. And, and Moses actually says to Pharaoh, he almost taunts him a little bit. He says, I leave you the honor of setting me the time to pray for you to get rid of the frogs. He says, Pharaoh, you tell me when you want it done and it'll be done. You, you, you make that choice. And so uh, the next day, the frogs, Moses prays and the frogs all die and are piled up in big stinking masses across Egypt. Now, those were the first three plagues. So we had the Nile changing to blood. We had, no, sorry, Allah, that wasn't, I haven't done the third plague yet. That was the first two. The Nile changing to blood, and we've had the frogs. Then, Pharaoh again changes his mind. And Moses tells Aaron to stretch out his rod. He hits the ground. And all the dust of the land in, in Egypt turns into lice. Now, we're not 100% sure if it was like, Last, last, or it could have been, it was some form of parasite. So it could have been ticks, it could have been sand fleas, it was some form of lice, all right? And this is truly devastating. I mean, now everybody is covered in these little parasites that are biting them, that are hurting them, that are making lives completely uncomfortable. Never mind the fact that the Egyptian gods Set and Jeb, who are the god of the desert and the god of the earth, haven't yet appeared to remove the lice. So the Egyptians are thinking, now what's happening? Um, and this one was uncomfortable for everyone, but it particularly went against the magicians. The magicians who, with the first plague and the second plague, turned around and went, oh, we can do the same. With this plague, they were horrified. They were absolutely struck down. Because to be a magician or a high priest in Egypt, you had to be extremely clean. They would shave their bodies Every second day, entirely, they'd even remove their eyelashes and their eyebrows because they were so opposed to ever having any form of human parasite or lust that might be able to grow on them. And it's like this plague comes along and goes exactly with what the magicians go against and, and things they don't like. And God's speaking almost directly to them going, you thought you could replicate, now what? 
And so the magicians, this time, they turned to Pharaoh, his own magicians who before were like, oh, we can make blood, we can make snakes, we can make frogs, turn to Pharaoh and go, you need to start listening because this is the finger of God. Now, it's also interesting to note that with those first three plagues, the blood, the frogs, the lust, the Bible tells us that everyone in Egypt was affected. That would include the Hebrew slaves themselves. Remember the people that were now angry with God? Who are you? Where are you? Now you've made our lives more difficult. Now they begin to see. And then God levels it up with the next plague that comes. And in this plague, he makes a distinction. He doesn't let this plague touch his Hebrew nation, his Israelites. This is the plague of the swarm of flies. Now again... This particular one, we don't know if it was normal flies, although most readings say it was probably dog flies, which are like horse flies, they bite. So this wasn't just inconvenient flies that somehow appear around the lace. These were swarms and swarms and swarms of biting flies that would come and nestle on the, on the Egyptian people and would bite them and make their lives uncomfortable. It's also interesting to note that in this plague, there's no reference to Aaron having to stretch out his staff at all. In fact, by what I've read... Moses is the one that brings this plague, not through Aaron. So the first three plagues, Aaron declares them and does them. Now Moses starts to do what God had originally asked him to do in the first place. The order of the flower was, believe it or not, a very high medal that you could wear in Egypt at the time. They also viewed flowers as something sacred. Well, to a degree, I'm sure. I don't think anyone in history really loves flies. But um, the point is, this was something, they, the, the fly to them was a symbol of power. And you can actually go and see that they had medals made and certain pendants that they would wear because it was sort of a military honor and a, and a, a noble honor. It meant you had great leadership. And now you've got these flies that start swarming across the land in huge masses. And Pharaoh again begins to bargain. He calls Moses in. He goes, okay, fine, 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 fine. You can go to the wilderness. You guys can go, go. But, well, first he says, you can actually come, you can do your sacrifices here in our land. And Moses says, no, I can't do them in the land because what we do would be an abomination to your people. They would get angry with us. We need to go into the wilderness. That's what God has commanded. And then he says, that's fine. Go into the wilderness. Just leave your cattle and your livestock here. In other words, go, but leave stuff so I know you're going to come back for it. And Moses says, no, we cannot. Our order from God is we've got to go with all our livestock and our cattle and our possessions into the land. And so again, Pharaoh hardens his heart and he doesn't let the people go. How many of us by this point might have changed our minds? Pharaoh doesn't. Because then comes the next plague, plague number five, which is the death of all the cattle and the livestock that were out in the field. And again here, God makes a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And so it is only the cattle on the livestock, and I must stress here in the field, because later on it looks like there's a contradiction, but there isn't. So all the cattle and the livestock that are in the field, they get struck by something. Might have been, some people say, even things from the bites of the flies, like anthrax or whatever from the previous plague. But anyway, their cattle and their livestock die. Now, the Egyptian gods and goddesses Hathor and Apis were depicted as cattle. Cattle, for the Egyptians, was sacred. That's why they didn't want the the Israelites to do any sacrifices in their kingdom, because for them to kill a, a cow was sacred. In fact, they had something called the Apis bull. 
Now, this, this blew my mind because they chose, within the reign of a pharaoh, they chose a big bull and they would worship that bull as though he were pharaoh himself because they somehow believed that he was some sort of manifestation of Pharaoh's power. And he was called the Apis Bull. And when this bull died, in, which it would do from time to time, and then they'd select a new one, when it died, it would be mummified, just like one of the pharaohs and, and nobles would have been, and it would have been placed in, as, in a huge sarcophagus. That's how much power and how much reverence they had for these animals because of the gods that they served, that they believed in, who, by the way, at this point, in case you haven't noticed, are still absent. We haven't yet got a god of Egypt who's standing up going, oh, sorry, um, we need to sort something out here. The death of the livestock also would have had a huge economic impact on Egypt. It would have been massive. There would have been part of their food supply affected, but there also would have been their transport their military supplies, their power, their trading power. I mean, God's literally making Pharaoh's kingdom crumble around him, and the man is still going, no, I will not let your people go. I mean, the, the livestock were the backbone of the Egyptian economy, and they've just been taken out in a plague. And again, I will not let your people go. In fact, Pharaoh even sends messengers to check, messengers to go check, are the, are the Israelite cattle really okay? He couldn't believe it. And maybe something in him was starting to, starting to wonder. In Exodus 9, we then get to plague number 6. And this is the first one that is a direct attack on the Egyptian people themselves, on their bodies per se, because Moses and Aaron go into the furnace under God's instructions. They take ashes out of the kiln, which were the kilns where the bricks were made that the Israelite slaves had to make, and they throw the ashes into the air. And that ash becomes a cloud of dust, and wherever it settles on the Egyptians, they break out in big festering boils all over their bodies. Big festering boils. I mean, Pharaoh himself. At this point, it's telling us that the magicians couldn't even stand, let alone try to now replicate anything. These guys were done for. You don't really read about them too much in the story anymore. The guys who represent the Egyptian gods, they're like kind of gone because at this point they are, they are helpless and hopeless. And you've got to understand that at this point, the Egyptians also were a forerunner in medicine. I think I mentioned that earlier. So for them, this would have been a direct affront to all their amazing doctors and their religious beliefs about healing and how they can heal. Because no matter what they did, they couldn't get rid of the boils. They were in absolute agony. And they had multiple gods and goddesses who they believed were in charge of healing and medicine and protection against epidemics. And not one of them stood up against God. So those were the next three plagues. That was then, I don't want to get them out of order. That was the flies. That was the death of the cattle and the livestock. That was the boils. By this point, how many of you thinking you were Pharaoh might go, okay, I'm done, enough? Not yet. Because then in Exodus 7, Pharaoh still won't let the people go. And I have to read this to you because it is, it's so interesting. Sorry, Exodus 9. My apologies. God says, he says, this is what he's saying to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you. Like, what was that? 
All the other things up until that point, what was that? If that wasn't even the full force of God, what's coming next? And the next three plagues that come are even more intense than the previous ones that have, the, the prior ones, the ones that have preceded. Um, and so the next plague that comes along, and this one, God actually gives warning. So the first three plagues affect everyone. They affect the Egyptians, they affect the Israelites. The next three just affect the Egyptians. And for the first time ever now, we even see a distinction within the Egyptians. God warns them and says, what I'm about to do now is going to affect you unless you take your families and whatever animals you have left and you go and take shelter. Because otherwise, anything left standing in a field, I am going to hit with hail and fire like you've never seen. He actually says, this will be a storm such as your ancestors have never witnessed. And that's exactly what happens. Some Egyptians listen. They take, they take their families and their livestock and they go and take shelter. Others follows is a massive, massive hailstorm, and it sounds like it could have been lightning as well, because the Bible describes it as hail and fire. So wherever the hail landed, basically stuff was incinerated at the same time as well. And some Egyptians were saved from this because they chose to listen to God. The Bible tells us that some of the crops were saved, but that the flax and the barley were ruined. Now, flax and barley we're not the main food source of Egypt. So God still isn't trying to take away all their food and make them really, really starve to death. He's trying to give them warning here. And barley was used for their alcohol, so all their celebrations and things. And flax was used to make linen. And flax was also used to make the cloths that they would mummify their pharaohs and their dead in. And what I found super, super interesting when I was researching this is that the, the plague of hail and fire was a direct attack, if you will, on the Egyptian beliefs of the afterlife. Because to be incinerated, to be cremated, was seen as a huge abomination. If you were cremated, if there was nothing of you to mummify and reunite in the afterlife with your body, uh, with, your, with your soul, um, they believed you went, into a, you, you went into a state of non-existence. It was worse than death. And so God is speaking directly here into their beliefs about the afterlife. And this plague that comes... It would have damaged people as the hail hit them. It would have incinerated people. There would have been nothing left. In other words, the people that were struck down here were struck into a state of non-existence. They were no more. After this, Pharaoh is a bit desperate. He now calls them and he goes, um, okay, let's talk again. And once again, the negotiations go out of sync. You see, because at this point, Pharaoh's own power among his people is starting to fail. Because he, as his godlike state, was in charge of making sure there was harmony and balance within his land. They believed that the gods kind of worked through, um, through Pharaoh and he brought this godlike state to their nation. And obviously he was failing at that task. So again, there's a negotiation. Again, he hardens his heart. He says, no, the people will not leave. And then God sends locusts. And the locusts arrive and they take out the crops that the hail didn't. So this time the locusts go after the food source of Egypt. And, um, it's, all their crops that they would rely on. So they've lost their livestock, they've lost their crops. In, uh, crops. in other words, death is starting to become imminent for the people of Egypt. It's becoming an almost definite possibility because their pharaohs still will not listen. Then the ninth plague hits, and Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh again, he negotiates. The ninth plague is one that some of us may be very, very familiar with, probably the wrong time to make a joke, it was the plague of darkness across the land. 
Anyone love the fact we had load shedding again last night? Beautiful. But it was darkness. It was total darkness. This plague went after their, um, probably their main god, the god of Ra, the god Ra, who they believed was the sun god. Direct attack on him. From what I understand of this plague, I mean, he sent darkness. God sent darkness on the Egyptian people for three days. They couldn't see their hands in front of their faces. I doubt that even if they tried to light a match, it would have struck. I think they were doomed to that darkness. There was nothing they could do, no torches, no bonfires, nothing that they could do to get rid of this darkness. It wasn't just like a nighttime. It was a sheer darkness where they could not see what was going on around them. And yet the Israelite people were in sunshine, in the same land. So for those who might go, oh, these were just like coincidences, phenomenons of nature. No, there were clear distinctions made when God's hand was at us. And he kind of relents and says, okay, fine, you guys can go, you guys can go. And as soon as the darkness is lifted, he goes, no, actually, sorry, I've changed my mind again. And now Moses and Pharaoh are a little bit fed up with each other. And Moses issues a warning to Pharaoh. And he says, the next thing that's coming is big. So, so far, we've had nine plagues. Three of them that affected everyone, the Israelites and the Egyptians, kind of made the Israelites realize their God really was working. Then you have the next ones, that, that, uh, the, the next three, which were kind of like a level up. Then you've got the next three, which were the big ones by God's own admission. He's like, now comes the full force of my plagues. Interesting to know that in Egyptian philosophy and religion, the number three was considered sacred because it was considered to be the, the number of their gods. So they usually grouped their gods together in groups of three, little triads. And then you had the, because it was called the plural number, then you had the plural of plurals, which was three times three, which was the number nine. So up until that point, we've got nine plagues that have spoken to the Egyptian people again and again and again. And of those gods that I told you about earlier with the Egyptians, all the gods they had, they would group them in what they called enneads, which were groups of nine. So the priests would take certain gods of the, that they believed in, and they would group them into groups of nine. Are you seeing where I'm going? Enead, which were the great nine gods, and then all the other gods that came off it. And so far, our God, the God of Israel, has come and has nine times proven that the gods of Egypt not just are futile, but that they don't exist. Nine times. And every single time, he gives an opportunity and says, let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let it never be said that we do not serve a patient God. The Bible says he is slow to anger. How often does he speak to us and speak to us? and speak to us, and speak to us, and we go, of course, and we come back, and we go, of course, and we come back, and we go, of course, and we come back, and yes, no, yes, no, harden our hearts, soften our hearts, harden our hearts, soften our hearts. God's like, there's only so long that that can happen for. He's now done the plural of plurals, and then comes the last plague. Exodus 12, verse 1 to 11, this is what he says to the people. I'm sorry, I won't be much longer. I know some of you are watching the clock. Exodus 12, verse 1 to 11, says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be the first month for you, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their neighbor, having taken into account the number of people that are there. 
You are to determine the, the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animal you choose must be a year-old male without defect, and you may take it from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire. And then it goes through all the details with the head and intestines and things. Do not leave any of it till morning, for if some of it is left, you must burn that. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And God speaks to his people. The Israelites up until this point have not had to do anything. And now he calls them to a step of obedience. And he says, this is what I need you to do. And you're going to eat it in haste. You're going to be packed and ready to go because this night I'm going to set you free. This is the night that we've led up to. And on that night, the Israelites obey. They paint the the blood upon their door frames. And at about midnight... The Bible tells us that the Lord passed through. He passed through Egypt and passed over the houses of the Israelites. But into every Egyptian household, the Lord entered and he killed the firstborn. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh to the firstborn son of the maids to the firstborn son of the animals. In other words, all the classes, all the houses in Egypt were affected. It's very interesting that in the conversation that God has with Moses at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 4, this is what he says to Moses. Before Moses has even gone into Egypt, God says this, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden, harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. That was before the plagues even happened. The ending was already written. But God, being a God of grace and kindness, gave the Egyptian people multiple chances to change their mind. We often say there are ten plagues. I would say, and I'm not, a, I'm not a big theologian or an Egyptologist, I would say there were nine plagues. There was from the, the blood in the river all the way up to the darkness. But the first wonder that God performed was Aaron's rod eating the magician's rods, meaning our God will demolish your gods. And the last thing he did was what he had promised to do in the beginning, as a warning if you will not listen. So there were these nine plagues, the Enneads, that went against every god that the Egyptians could have believed in. And then there was the move of the one true god. And it was, it wasn't a moment of celebration for the, for the Egyptians. I mean, up until that point, the Egyptians, some of them had had a chance to change their mind. But because of the unrelentingness of Pharaoh, They were all, and the Bible tells us, I I just want to get there, Exodus 12, verse 29 to 30, says, At midnight the Lord struck down 
all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. That's where I stop my story today. And I know it's taken long and I apologize for that. There was just so much and I left so much out too. And I said it last week, I'll say it again this week. The God of Moses is the God that we serve. There is not a power on this earth. And you know what? There are powers out there. There are some things out there that you might go, oh no, there's absolutely no power. There are, there, there are things that have power over us. But there is not a single thing that has power that can stand against the power of God. And over and over and over in Scripture, in these passages, God repeats the phrase. Go and read it. I I, I urge you, go and read that Exodus. It's Exodus from chapter 4 to chapter 12. Go read it. Over and over and over, God repeats the phrase, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. What did he say to Moses at the burning bush? He's like, they knew me. Abraham knew me as God Almighty. Your people will know me as God the Lord, God supreme, God over everything. He says it 39 times in those eight passages of scripture. I am the Lord over and over to Moses, to the Israelites, to the Pharaohs. And he says it to us today as well. He is our Lord. He is the power over any other power. We watch in scripture how, how he comes again and again and again. Things that frighten us. Things that hold us back. Things that we go, there's no hope. I'm caught in this. And God's going, look to me. I am the Lord. So this morning hasn't been some big philosophical, philosophical um, theory. I, I just want you to understand from the story of Moses and from the plagues that he brought upon, upon the, the Egyptian people that God is a God who is slow to anger. He's a God who is patient with us. But I also want you to know that any powers that you fear are diminished. In fact, they are decimated against the power of our God. There is nothing that you could worry about or be afraid of this morning or that could be holding you back or pushing you down or keeping you up at night. There is nothing that our God fears. There is nothing that is more powerful than him. The God who brought the plagues of Egypt, who set his people free, will set you and I free today. 39 times in those eight chapters, God says, I am the Lord. That name Yahweh came from that moment on to be revered by the Israelite people to the point that when they wrote it, they didn't even write it in the Bible. They, they, they paraphrased in I am the Lord. They replaced it. When the, the Jewish nation, when they write the name Yahweh, they write it without the vowels, as, a, as so you'll find it Y-H-W-H. And I heard this thing recently about how the way you say it, it's not just Yahweh, it's Yahweh. It's the very breath of God. You doubt the existence of God. He's around you. He is in you. He is over you. Not acknowledging him doesn't change his existence. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he was still part of the story of God. 
only his ending wasn't such a happy one. As we take communion this morning, I want us to just spend a couple of moments just revering that fact that the God who created the universe created you and me. The God who formed everything else by his spoken word took the time to form human beings out of the dust of the ground. And then he breathed into us. And when he breathed into us, he breathed Yahweh into us. And so every time you inhale and exhale, it's proof of the existence of God. It's proof of the power of God over all things. He gives us that breath. Can we stand together? Heavenly Father, you are the Lord. You are the giver and the taker of life, Lord. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You are greater than the plural of plurals, Lord. You are the King above kings. You are the Lord above lords. Father, and you have chosen us. And we are humbled and encouraged by that this morning. Father, as we go through this week, as we go through this month, as we go through our lives and we we face trials and we face challenges and we face things that might hold us back, Lord, may we remember your body and your blood. May we remember the original Passover where you passed over the Israelites. And Father, you led them out of freedom, out 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 of Egypt into freedom, Lord. We thank you for that deliverance. Father, we thank you that you will speak to each of us this morning. Lord, and you'll speak to us throughout this week. Father, as we get into your word, Lord, as we spend time with you, as Pete said a few weeks ago in the garden, Father, may you reveal to us as you revealed to Moses. And Lord, we humbly ask you would work through us and in us and in every circumstance as you did with Moses. You are Lord of Lords, you are King of Kings, and you are our Father. We thank you that we are your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.